Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Sixth Sense. You know the accident there? Yeah. Someone got hurt. They did? A lady. She broke her neck. Oh my god, but you can see her? Yes. Where is she? Standing next to my window. Baby, why are you shaking? Cole, what's wrong? Did you ever talk to your mom about how things are? I don't tell her things. Why not? Because she doesn't look at me like everybody else, and I don't want her to. I don't want her to know. Know what? for them. I think that they know that you're one of these very rare people who can see them. So you need to help them. What if they don't want to help? I don't think that's the way it works. How do you know for sure? Tonight, we are going to talk about M. Night Shyamalan's third film, Nobody Remembers Praying with Anger and Wide Awake, and my personal favourite, The Sixth Sense. Oh, and his name for the record is M. Knight, with an N like Knight of the Hunter, rather than Knigget, like Knight in Shining Armour, and Shyamalan, not Shyamalama Ding Dong. When you say it like that, you sound like a racist cab driver foolishly voicing his disapproval of Muslims celebrating Ramadan, so just don't anymore, please. Now, as with The Thing, there is absolutely zero point listening to what we're about to say without having seen the film yourself first. This is a mystery with far too much that we will otherwise spoil. So go watch this and then come back. If you haven't seen The Sixth Sense yet, oh, are you in for a treat? If you have seen it, but haven't seen it for a long time, it might still be better to refresh your memory and remind yourself. If not, maybe just listening to us talking about it here will make you go, oh, I'm going to look out for that next time. Next week, we'll be covering his third film, Unbreakable, so the exact same situation applies. Maybe just get the triple pack with signs and take in the entirety of the four-year period that Shyamalan was flying high in Hollywood before he was laid so low for the next 14 years. Because in discussing his best two films, we also have to discuss Shyamalan's problems. Now, Sharon... What would you say weighs his films down overall? Specifically, the later films, um, you know, the things I'm thinking of, what have I got written on this piece of paper, um, really affect the later films. Like, um, a lot of people... uh, See, I really liked The Village, but a lot of people didn't. And by the time he got to Lady in the Water, it was bloody apparent what the problems were. And they only intensified with the happening. 
I think if I was going to sum it up in one sentence, it would be that he has got into the habit of making films which are simultaneously far too complex and far too simple. Um, He's become convinced of his own genius. Genius! Which is a problem. Um, And every time he makes a film, he seems to be trying to recreate the buzz that he got almost by accident about The Sixth Sense. Um, Which makes him more of a stunt director. Yeah, basically. He's got a little catalogue of things that there has to be in his films. There has to be a twist. I don't know. Since, um, like, with The Happening... Mm. There was less of a twist. Only because the twist was so friggin' stupid that it just didn't work. Um, uh, It is technically a twist. Lady in the Water, just, you're like, this can't, like, it can't just be straight like this. There is something, oh my God, it is exactly as it Mm. said. Yeah. The twist is they worked all the symbols out wrong. Of course there was no twist in... uh, But but it's more the fact that he seems to... um, he seems to be convinced that what he is is a creator of puzzles and that everything in his films is connected mm. to each other. There's no twist in After Earth. There's no twist... In, well, I think there is... The twist in The Visit is bloody obvious. Mm. Um, and there's no twist in... What's that? Oh, <laughs> The Last Airbender. Well, no. little the, the little independent in movie you might is, have heard of that was. He shouldn't have been given that movie. Um, but I think it's... <sighs> It's more... The twist in that is that there is no middle reel to that film. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the, the basic issue is that he he creates these threads and seems to have a desire to make these incredibly complex and uh, intricate stories where everything is woven into each other. But then in order to make them weave into each other, because he's not that good of a director, he then has to oversimplify it. So I think that's that's probably my <coughs> issue. He's going for an overall too complex pattern, um, which he then has to oversimplify the pieces in order to make it work. And as a result, you tend to end up with um, extremely wooden dialogue, um, extremely wooden performances, unless the actor is superb and able to deliver pretty much on their own. That said, I do think Bruce Willis's performance in this is probably the best thing I've ever seen him do. Mm-hmm. I've got down contrived dialogue delivered in a stiff, stilted manner, rarely introducing humour and making his characters appear inhuman because nobody reacts like you or I would. They are thoughtful and introverted, quirky and odd like Wes Anderson characters, but unlike Wes Anderson characters, they are only being conveyed for drama within the confines of the thriller genre. Mm. That is problematic. Yeah, Wes Anderson is very stylized, and that draws your attention to the way they talk and, mm. and, and it feels more like a logical part of this stylized world whereas Shyamalan tends to be trying to present something that feels realistic and then when it doesn't feel realistic it feels wrong. This then leads him careering into self-seriousness as a result of this, which means even the silly stuff is treated in a sombre tone. There's a pervading sense of gloom, confusion, regret, papering over the past and isolation from the rest of humanity. And the result is a cinematic bibliography that appears to take place at a funeral. 
how did we define self-serious? Because we were watching Hellwares the other day, and I just it just occurred to me that this is why it feels like Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, mm. uh, which is a, a, a very sharp, acerbic, very little-known um, British TV show. Uh, six, well, there's like six episodes, one and done season, um, parodying Clive Barker style, um, hot, like psychological body horror, um, and sort of Lovecraftian themes in like in like with horrible late eighties t uh, Channel Four production values, mm-hmm. um, but it, it exemplified self seriousness in, in in a way that. Like, what's the difference between serious and self-serious? Well, specifically, what we said about self-serious is that it it steps over the serious line to ridiculous more often than not, mm-hmm. but never but acknowledges never that. Never realizes that that's what's happening. Yeah, um, it doesn't have anything approaching a sense of humor, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't have the quality that can take something which is... By the way, this sounds like we're bitching about The Sixth Sense. The Sixth Sense is the exception to this rule. It's fan-bloody-tastic. Yeah, it was basically all downhill from here. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a bit. But it's just like, let's look at the self, the, what self-seriousness mm-hmm. is, because it's the inability to laugh at oneself, the inability to know when you are being laughable. This is where Nanar comes from, mm. from... Uh, Directors and uh, like tyrannical directors who believe, you know just push through whilst everyone else around them is getting very nervous because they can see this is becoming disastrous. Mm. Very specifically, there's a lack of humility in it. There's mm. usually somebody leading the group, um, leading the project, who thinks this is better than it is, mm. Mm. Um, and not just in a sort of a confident, having faith in themselves way, uh, because there's an awful lot of mediocre box office moderate hits that aren't all that crash hot and the directors think that they're wonderful but specifically when you've got a director who is convinced of their own genius genius and they believe that this is you know something which is genre changing and that you know everything that comes (laughs) everything that comes after this is going to be a footnote a tour de force (laughs) um so I think part of it is is we're just describing the, Lady in the Water here, by the way. Yeah, the, the, this the Lady in the Water is a film where on paper you read it and you go, "Hang on, the scrunt is seeking the naff and the biddly bong," and it's like, okay, right. You know, Shyamalan said he wrote this for his kids. No, he didn't. He wrote it for himself. It's a piece of self-aggrandizing hogwash that involves the actor saying things like, "The naff is coming out of the tree, followed by the scrunt, but the eagledy piggledy is hiding in the buddly bong, and after a while, the eagle of doom is going." To, and you're going, "Shut up, shut up, shut up." How can you have gone through a script meeting? Somebody not said, "I'm." So Sorry. Well, in fact, they famously did. They went to Disney and the Disney executive said, uh, uh, M. Night, I'm sorry, I don't get this. Well, you know what? I'm with the executive. There's a reason for not getting it. It's absolute self-indulgent waffle of the highest order. But this is all a joke, right? This is like, these are just like placeholder names. They've actually got real. No, this is. This is it. This is it. What that really bothered me about Lady in the Water the last time we watched it. Because if you just reworded it. It never really hit me before. But I was watching it thinking, if you use 
used proper, proper, if you used actual mythological terms from Greek myth or call, Celtic myth call or the, something the like that. Call the scrunt Fenris, the wolf yeah. uh, archetype. The, uh, call the Narfs mermaids. Or, or um, nymphs or um, uh, uh, Undine. Yeah. Like just Undine. There, just, was, there was a film called Undine that came out recently as well. something that had like the tinge of recognisability about it. But because he but had that, to you don't know his own myth, that the name of your water nymph is one letter different from Snarf in Thundercats, and that doesn't bother you. That I mean, we should cover that movie, but we hate movies did it so well, and we would have very little else to say aside from like, there's so much beauty and so much poise in Lady in the Water, and it's squandered in this really awkward, like, you know, this is your choice. Every scene, it feels like they, they, they had it, and he did it wrong. Yeah, and you've got Bryce Dallas Howard, who is lovely, and Paul Giamatti, who is an excellent actor. Oh, Giamatti, don't screw it up this time. And it, it, it just, you know, threw it down the drain. Literally. Yeah. Literally. Mm. Um, anyway, we're yeah. not talking about No, no, Lady no, because we, 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 you know, I don't want to have to do the whole of Lady in the Water. Oh, okay. Lady in the Water is also possessed of one of the most wonderful James Newton Howard scores. Maybe my second favourite after this one. It's, it's astonishing. If you just listen to that album the whole way through and just forget about Lady in the Water, that was... They used the music for the trailer for The Golden Compass, so that's always twinned with a series of his dark materials that never happened for me. You know, it's that's always been that James Newton Howard made this wonderful score actually for Northern Lights, but he gave it to Shyamalan to do um, Lady in the Water with instead. Mm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's got that sort of the wonderful storytelling thing at the beginning and that's when the sort of self-seriousness becomes because, you know, like, like you've got this sort of David Ogden Steers. Oh, yeah. Oh. This wonderful voice. And, um, intro for Beauty and the Beast. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, you've got the guy who's done the intro to Beauty and the Beast, and somehow... Give him a proper fairy tale to work on. No one talks, you know, like a person would. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, and, and, and everyone talks like a Shyamalan character. And, like, that, 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 for me, that movie is peak Shyamalan, because the happening is just awful for me to watch. But Lady in the Water... I can see the brilliance in there. That you can't deny the brilliance that Shyamalan is occasionally capable of. So you've got to watch a movie where he shows the potential and then falls dramatically on his ass. So uh, Lady in the Water is exactly that for me. It's it's the um, you know the, the the kernel of the most beautiful golden popcorn in the bag that singularly not only failed to pop but broke your goddamn tooth. <laughs> Do you guys at home, do you get what I mean about the funeral thing? Like, if you watch Signs, we get that Mel Gibson's wife died, but everyone's still acting like the wake was yesterday. Everyone's still acting like we've got to speak very, very quietly. And, like, I completely understand grief, and I completely understand, like, dealing with grief. New Century, my book series, is about the world going through stages of grief and recovery because everyone on the planet knows someone who died during this apocalyptic 
you know, scenario with all these creatures. This could be a bad Shyamalan film. You know, just give me a call and, and we'll, we'll make it not happen at all. And I get the whole dealing with grief thing, but there's never that real sense that Shyamalan himself gets that everyone's suffering from grief and that what's the what's the healthy version of them that we never seem to see hmm. um you know because grieving is healthy and coming through and out of it is part of that process hmm. and which is, signs appear that appears to be like that the, we're not going to do signs i don't think i don't i don't love that film like like, like i do this one hmm. uh, we are doing unbreakable next week though um but that that film appears to be dealing with grief and sort of getting over that. But, like, it's in The Sixth Sense as well. It's in Unbreakable as well. It's in Lady in the Water because uh, Giamatti's character is suffering from, from grieving. Um, and uh, The Village, they're there because of grieving. Mm. The ho- Shyamalan's career is dressed in its black mourning suit. Mm. It's... There is, you're absolutely right, there is a thread throughout of not just grief, but being stuck in grief. Yeah. Of being in a, a, a grieving that will not move forward. and that- Which is why he is the was the one of the worst directors for uh, The Last Airbender. Mm. <clears throat> because that, I mean, by all rights, Aang should be grieving. Mm. But the, the the way that water, the first book, is conveyed, it's just brightness and sunshine and light. You don't get that sense of the real weight of what's been lost until way later. Mm. And then it's all part of the natural process. And, Sh- and Shyamalan doesn't know how to deal with that process, mm. not on screen. Yeah. He he does seem to, in theory, because that's that's a big part of what I, I think The Sixth Sense is about. Because Dude, the village, they stay. Yeah. They don't. They don't change anything. But one of the things that um, that Malcolm says specifically to Cole, and I'm jumping ahead here, um, but one of the things that he says to him when he's talking about um, listening to the ghosts and finding out what they want, hmm. um, if you. If oh, and you, I forgot. Uh, Will Smith, I believe, is grieving a dead wife in uh, After Earth, and, and that makes Jaden Smith. What if we're all grieving a dead mom? Indeed. Um, But yeah, when he's talking about that, it it struck me that he's also referring to emotions, particularly very strong emotions. They're there because they want you to listen to them and you make them go away by listening to them. You don't make them go away by ignoring them Hmm. Um, and unblocking that and letting it flow is, you you know, you you kind of, you then get to move on from it Hmm. and... There just, yeah, doesn't seem to be a lot of that in the later films. His chi is blocked. <laughs> he needs to go see the guru. Mm. Okay. However, when he gets it right, which doesn't happen anymore, but may someday happen again, if he realises a few things about himself, when he gets it right, his films are tightly paced, super focused, atmospheric, believable, Highly detailed, carefully arranged, masterfully framed, emotionally intense mysteries which bear up to countless reviewings up there with the best of Hitchcock. That's right, I said it. I said it. It had to be said. Somebody got to say it. Chipman, I think, uh, mentioned that people were comparing him back in his early days to, uh, you know, that he might potentially be the new Spielberg. He always struck me more as Hitchcock. He had that magic touch, and I refuse to believe that someone who has 
that can never recapture it. It wasn't the twists that made him great or the lack of them that made him lose his touch. It was the multitude of factors in these first couple of films all combining into a couple of extremely well-balanced cocktails. <clears throat> so let's start off by looking for The Sixth Sense at the casting. Because you've got a quartet of uh, actors. Bruce Willis, Olivia Williams, Tony Collette, Haley Joel Osment. Who give, I would posit, their finest performances in this film. It's close with, with, with several of them. Um, uh, Bruce Willis, obviously, Die Hard's a huge one for me. Even though it's technically an action thriller, that is a fucking performance. You wouldn't buy McLean's fragility, just despite the fact that he's a great big bullish man who's all manly and stubborn and rude and macho that he can be hurt physically and emotionally um but uh that's up there as well but i still think that sixth sense just tops it um i think sixth sense tops it for me because um because he played the McLean character mm-hmm. so many times after that. And admittedly, the, in the later films, he, he doesn't quite feel like the same guy. Huh. Um, but the character that he I plays... I strike four and five from the record. That is an alternate I reality. Know, I know. But the, the character that he plays in Pulp Fiction is not a million miles from John McLean. It, it, generally speaking, the feeling that I get from, from Willis in those action movies is that that is the easiest character for him to play just because he does it so much. Mm. Um, and I think what impressed me about this was that it was significantly different from that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Malcolm is much more of um, an intellectual person. He's not physical at all. He can't be. He can't touch anything or he can't really interact with very much mm. um, at all. So everything that, that comes through him has to do so in words. Or visually. <clears throat> I would also say Tony Collette's performance in Little Miss Sunshine was fantastic, but it's not as close. It's not as fantastic as the one in The Sixth Sense. Mm. I, I do think the character um, of Lynn is astounding in terms of the the subtlety and how strong she has to be and how... Uh, you you can feel the weight of everything that she's carried before, mm. and you can um, feel for where she's going to go after this. She feels like a whole person. Yeah, but in a way that most Shyamalan characters really don't, yeah. because they're there to convey a an facet, idea. yeah, a of fraction of an the idea. script um, of the actual story. But honestly, I have never seen Tony Collette do anything less than brilliant. Yeah, yeah, she's one of those uh, actors like um, Stanley Tucci. I've never seen Stanley Tucci be anything less than brilliant. He's even like the best thing in terrible films, Mockingjay Part Two. There's nothing good about that film, but Stanley Tucci's great in the tiny bit he's in it. Mm. By the way, BT Dubs, first Hunger Games, great. We'll be doing a show on the Hunger Games and then maybe a second show on Catching Fire, which is really good, and then Mockingjay Part 1, which is ugh, and Mockingjay Part 2, which is ugh, in our very humble opinions. But yeah, folks have been asking about those. Uh, but yeah, Tony Collette, like Stanley Tucci, always seems to give it her all. Like she, she never sort of turns up and just sort of phones it in, mm. you know. So yeah, Bruce Willis, uh, you know, as we said, career high. And at this point... Like looking at where he was at that stage, he'd done Die Hard, 
and then he did Die Hard 2 and then stuff like Color of Night and Hudson Hawk and started to sort of die down and then he came back with Pulp Fiction and Die Hard 3 and then The Fifth Element and like you know Fifth Element was not widely adored but um, it was at Cannes and stuff and then he did Armageddon and then at Cannes it got laughter at the end during the sad bits and he stood up and shouted disapprovingly at the French audience I'm glad you find the end of the world so funny and then he did Mercury Rising, which is a god-awful piece of crap, uh, with a kid in it. Which is why, in America, in 1999, I didn't go and see this. I saw The Astronaut's Wife with Johnny Depp and Carly Theron, who I really liked. And it was a piece of goddamn dog shit. And I should have seen The Sixth Sense, because everyone was fucking talking about it. I saw Blair Witch that weekend as well, and I didn't see The Iron Giant. I saw Tarzan, and I did see Mystery Men. But yeah, no, Sixth Sense, suddenly, everyone loves Bruce Willis again. And it's about this time when Bruce Willis started turning into his sort of grumpy Homer Simpson type. The, the guy who was in The Siege, you know, the, the guy who basically, after that point, got everything his own way, never really had to work too hard for much of anything, never really invested himself, sat playing his harmonica whilst on talk shows, <laughs> just didn't give a fuck. And I'm sad because I don't like this new Bruce Willis and I don't think anyone does. And I would really like to see... Because again, the old Bruce Willis is in there underneath the layers of can't be fucked. And he is absolutely capable of being a truly magnetic film star. And this is his best performance. And it's a fragile one. It's one which shows that he can really feel pain. And yet it's also reined in. There was a point later on in the film uh, where uh, he has to say to Cole that he can't see him anymore and he can't be his uh, doctor. Um, and they're both on the verge of tears, but they hold it back because he doesn't like to do wet scenes, which are basically where everyone starts blubbing. And I'm with him on that. I think when people really start like sobbing on film, it can sometimes get really uncomfortable for the audience if they're not directly feeling it. But uh, yeah, just... Sometimes just holding it back and not properly just letting the waterworks come can be very, very powerful, mm. and that was. Which is the bulk of how things are played in this, to be honest with you. I mean, one of the notes that I made is that there's almost nobody in this overplays anything. Mm. It's the, the reactions are all subtle. Um, you get warmth and melancholy rather than fury or... Um, Overacting uh, and overplaying a hand. Overplayed... Yeah misery or anything like that the only exceptions are for very significant moments like um vincent at the beginning yeah his his emotional reaction is extremely strong but that is consistent with the way that his character has been introduced that you know trained psychiatrists believe that he has a mood disorder and this is you know over-extreme emotional response is consistent with that diagnosis. Um, you get uh, some very brief, intense emotions from um, a couple of the ghosts towards yeah. the, um, the third act, which is entirely consistent. Strong emotion is what's keeping them there. Yeah. It, it makes perfect sense that you would get that from them. I but, have a theory on that, by the way, on, on how they're portrayed. Mm. But, but for everybody else, even in moments where you would expect in a, in a Hollywood movie it to be very overblown and very mm. um, emotionally overplayed. It's just not. 
one of the the elements that sums it up for me is um, is Lynn and Cole in the car at the end. Mm-hmm. When he's talking to her, she puts her hand over her mouth to, mm-hmm. to stop her lips from trembling, to stop her mouth from crying. She can't do anything about her eyes, but she's trying to hold it. She's physically trying to hold it back. Um, and I kind of get that sense from everybody, really, that there is, again, this... this overwhelming emotion that they is right there underneath the surface and it's reflected in the script as well there's almost no extraneous exposition here mm. um even sort of at the very beginning when you've got them talking uh, Anna and uh, Malcolm talking about the award mm. and you know they're explaining what he got it for and it's basically a way of introducing Malcolm as a character mm. but it's done in a way that seems consistent it's it's you know it's very lean and it's yep yeah, they're talking mostly like people would mm. it's a so little bit stilted because they're both they're a little bit drunk. drunk exactly and that that informs on the rest of that scene because then you've got the fact that uh, when Vincent turns up Malcolm responds in a very professional way you know he tries to stay calm he doesn't show the fact that he's terrified and it, it's highly likely that at that point Malcolm is going to be more scared for Anna than he is for himself yeah but he holds it in and he tries to respond, especially once he knows that Vincent was a patient of his. Mm-hmm. He tries to respond as a doctor to a, a disturbed patient in a session. Um, but because he's a little bit drunk, he's, he has to stop a minute, you know, give me a minute, let me think. And again, that's mirrored in what Lynn says to Cole in the car. Just let me think for a minute. I'm mm. not going to overreact to you. You can you can be calm. It's okay. I'm not going to shout. I'm not angry with you. But just I need a let minute. Me. That's very human. Yeah. That's very unlike most of the stuff that happens in other Shyamalan films. Mm. Um, and uh, you've also got Olivia Williams, who again has, she's been sort of in and out of Hollywood. She's never really been huge like um, uh, Scarlett Johansson or Kate Winslet, I suppose. Um, but she is always luminous in whatever she's in. Um, she was in Rushmore, I think, the same year, which is, again, fantastic in a Wes Anderson film where all the characters are quirky and, and slightly tragic. Um, but this, because effectively, for most of the film, she's acting on her own. So when you see it again... The, the isolation of her character, just, you know, the, the, the only people that she really communicates with are her, her colleague, the guy from Series 7, The Contenders, and um, the, the, the client she works with. But she feels she never really seems to connect with them. And when they, well, when her colleague starts to get close, she draws away. And the whole point of her character in the film is that she has basically become locked off from humanity. It, much the same as Malcolm. She is, in effect, a ghost herself. Um, in fact, Malcolm shares a very close relationship with Cole, so he has more connection to humanity than she does. Um, and it, his journey is about setting her free. Oof, it's already starting to get a little dusty in here. Um, and uh, again, Olivia Williams plays it with such... What's the word... Poignancy? Yes. I would say shining-eyed, stiff upper-lippedness, if that makes sense. Like, she's British and she's got to put a brave face on it, but you can see it's fucking wrecking her. Do you know what? That occurred to me. I suddenly thought, has this got something to do with the fact that it's set in Philadelphia? Mm Mm-hmm. 
the tone of it feels very British. If you transplanted it to a Brit, it really reminded me of Truly Madly Deeply. Truly Mad, yeah. And that is extremely British in terms of, of how emotional reactions are portrayed and, and how people are expected to respond to, to death and to grief. I think this is the second time we've recommended this. It is a hard-to-get-hold-of uh, film that came out around about the same time as Ghost. Um, I also love Ghost. But um, Alan Rickman, Juliet Stevenson, and um, it's he basically has the same job as um, Malcolm in this. He has to set her free from being trapped with him and the, the, the idealized memory of him. And in fact, the whole way watching you're like, hang on, is he, is this more of a projection from her is, you know, that's quibbling over. There's a possibility he might simply be a fragment of of her memory of him. Mm. It's an interesting take on on both of them, though, because I see both of those relationships as being more about um, them, as in Alan Rickman's character in Truly Madly Deeply and and Malcolm, um, about it being setting themselves free. Mm. them letting go of the idea that they have to stay with these women to look after them and let them go on and live the rest of their lives. I think I'm taking this cue from Ghost Town, the Ricky Gervais film, where he basically says that ghosts are the inability to let go of somebody that you love. So mm-hmm. in, in that case, the, the Greg Kinnear's character is a is a fragment of Tia Leone not able to just let go. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's uh, a shade of himself. Oh. this the Ghosts can be done incredibly well in cinema I mean more so to to me more so than in any other medium because you can just focus it on a two hour or less story that has a beginning a middle and an end and just get it done in that one sitting and that that whole thing is a journey Um, Del Toro works fantastically well in this kind of thing as well I mean Crimson Peak uh, is great but um, The Devil's Backbone is superb. And uh, The Orphanage, which he uh, executive produced, uh, is my favourite ghost story, even outstripping this. Yeah. And um, we'll be doing that, uh, a Del Toro season, at some point very soon. Um, But as well as Olivia Williams, you have Haley Joel Osment in his first proper film, because I think he was in Forrest Gump, as uh, I think I know he was in Forrest Gump as Little Forrest, Forrest Jr. Mm. Cute as a button. Uh, but uh, in this, it was his first like proper acting role, uh, you know, high profile people discovered him. And he did a couple more after this. I think his other big one was AI. Uh, and he was also in Secondhand Lions, which I've heard I think Bob mentioned was good. Um, but Jesus Christ, this kid in this performance, a, a he used to run and throw himself against the wall several times before they'd start to get that level of shaken. Um, similarly, with his intensity, um, and and uh, Donnie Wahlberg, brother of Mark, you know, I was watching him, you know, talking about how he got into um, uh, his character as Vincent Gray, and he just seems like this very serious actor and I was looking at him talking about it and I was like why is Mark the more famous and high profile of these two brothers Mark's a dunderhead I've never seen Mark Wahlberg say anything smart or anything insightful or anything about the craft he just he always comes off like a a a, a, a modern day Dirk Diggler but uh, um 
I'm told by many, many people, oh, he's really, really talented in the fighter or shooter or that other film where he wears a hat. Um, but, but Donnie Wahlberg, as for Vincent, basically got himself into a headspace that's frightening for most people. Um, and he, you know, he he took he, he got himself somewhere that even M Night wasn't taking him. He was like, "I'm going to do this one. I'm going to do this one properly." And then afterwards, after raging against the doorway um, for for his his off his evening of filming, he just wandered off for several hours and wandered around uh, Philadelphia in a daze, which you know must have been distressing. Jared Leto, take note. I don't want to take pot shots at your only time of playing the Joker. But that's that's how you act. You don't send rats to people, and it's it's not like Anthony Hopkins just like sort of I turn up on set and then fum I'm Hannibal Lecter and then just like you know fum and cut and then run back to being Anthony Hopkins again. You see, um, you know there are certain actors who can turn it on and off. Some incredibly intense performances require you to drum yourself into this. But of course, you also need to be given good material. So later, had fuck all to work with. But that doesn't excuse douchebaggery behind the scenes, which is nothing. Sending your colleagues dead cats, dead rats, dead hats. It doesn't make you a better Joker under any circumstances. It's just fucking around with DHL. So, yeah. There is a story that is told with the Vincent Gray performance, which becomes far more apparent once you've seen it the first time, because you are then you're given the end point for Cole as a character once he has lost everything, once he has no recourse, nowhere else to hide, and he is a wreck, and he has in fact been uh, stewing on the fact that Malcolm let him down for years to the point where he's 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 become fixated on this failure and then when you see Cole you see you know what Vincent would have been the first time around so that when you see it a second time you can then see everything that happened to Vincent all of that trauma that Cole goes through and it's heartbreaking the second time because the first time you're like oh my god that would be so scary because you're in Malcolm's shoes but then the second time you watch it you can empathize more with Vincent which is I don't even think Shyamalan knew that he was onto such a, a, a stroke of, of mastery there. But so much of that performance seems to have come from um, Wahlberg. The the you know the idea of taking his clothes off, the idea. Yeah, of, he wanted to be completely naked. They talked him down to underpants. Yeah, um, the fact that he uh, he dieted very very extremely to get himself that thin and that. Um, you know that emaciated mm. look for less than four minutes on camera mm. you know yeah. which is not necessarily healthy no um, I don't think the headspace that he got himself into for the role was necessarily healthy no um, but it it sells the opening of the film there is um, a sacrifice sometimes for getting into that headspace something that uh, Paul Heath Ledger uh, paid the price for and it, I, it's not recommended, frankly. It's, there are some roles which are too dark to really inhabit. And um, I, I wouldn't suggest people seek them, frankly. You need a lot of fucking um, wherewithal to be able to play the Joker, to be able to go in and out of that head. It is, you know, it, everyone's fascinated with him. But to be there, really, you got to live with him. It's like he's your roommate, and um, 
you can't escape them. And if it's you're going to be in there for multiple films, you have to find some way of coping with that. Mm. Um, so I, I, whoever gets to play the Joker next time, I, I hope they... Frankly, I hope they have fun with it because I think we've seen enough dark Joker for a while. That's not what's going to happen, is it? They'll focus on the Joker who gets his face cut off and nails it back on. Shit like that. Um, but yeah, uh, fortunately, Donnie didn't undergo any serious psychological repercussions for this one. However, this is where the details start in this early sequence. Um, when Anna comes down to the basement in the first shot to retrieve the wine, she starts to shiver. And once you know the rules you can infer from that that there was someone else there in the basement um, or possibly a future echo of Malcolm dwelling down there, which from the looks of it, he seems to do later. Um, in fact, the um, the bit where her colleague comes to the front door to ask if she wants to go to the farmer's market um, and he's just sort of down there, sort of like he's there, a sort of a passenger removed from her life but he's there in the basement again I don't even think M. Night really thought this one through. it seems like divine inspiration that all these things slot into place this sort of wonderful symbolism if he did think of it hats off to him because he was really on point for this apparently he scrapped the first two scripts and then the third one he invented the character of Cole Seer that means that Cole the kid was not even in the first two versions of this no I think that there was a kid in those versions but he wasn't the focus alright the third or fourth draft was where he brought the focus in on Cole okay Okay. Uh, also, uh, someone asked me if I was going to mention that uh, there was an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark where uh, it had the same twist and it turns out that you've been assuming all along that there's a ghost, but then the person who thinks that there's a ghost is actually a ghost. And um, yeah, it's, it's good theory, fan theories, yep. Uh, either Shyamalan nabbed it wholesale from that went, ooh, no one else has seen that for a while, I guess I'll use that. Uh, or he didn't. And he was totally inspired to come up with this idea without knowing that that other one existed. I'm fairly certain I've come up with a whole bunch of things in New Century which have done, been done elsewhere. It's irrelevant, though. Mm. because It's how well you do it. I mean, it was when I first saw... Well, I was just going to say when I was watching the others, I wasn't constantly thinking, oh, well, this is just the same as The Sixth Sense because it doesn't. it's how well it's sold. It's not what it is. Mm. Okay, well, there is a twist in the others. But again, in the same way as The Sixth Sense is handled, um, the film itself is so well put together, it doesn't matter that ultimately the twist is fantastic and it's the ice, it's the cherry on top of the icing on top of the cake. And Shyamalan instead said that he, he compared it to sort of always having Michael Jordan on the team to deliver the final punch. And it's like, well, hey, the final punch. Basket. Basket. Um, and just, you know, whatever happens, I've got this, which made him write more confidently. But, um, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe ultimately having a really good ending in mind uh, is healthy for a screenwriter because far too goddamn many films get to the beginning of the third act, kind of reach their emotional peak, and then the rest is all stuff and nonsense. But and, clearly and that's not working for him because he starts with his twist and works backwards yeah. and it just... Anticlimactic yeah. is the word I would use to describe the vast majority of his output. Yeah. I, I don't know. Is it, I said good ending. I didn't say twist. 
Uh, you know? Yeah. If you know how to finish strong and have every, but leave everybody breathless, it doesn't matter whether they expected it or not, ultimately, mm-hmm. you can write confidently and basically eliminate the fluff that, that holds the viewer back from getting to that point. Mm. I mean, I, I, so I begin every single one of my stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end in mind. And ultimately, I try to sort of flow organically from the uh, beginning through to the middle without um, giving... The tough bit is when you have to move characters from one place to another, effectively achieving very little more than travel. And uh, there was one uh, chapter in Arlington, which um, was just supposed to be exactly that. I was even going to just go later when they were at the blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, 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 let's actually do this properly. And it ended up being this really fantastic character piece. And it, just, it was really sort of bottled in as the tension grew and you saw how everyone was reacting from that tension growing. And that then the releases at the end, it just, that's one of the best chapters in the in the end. But it's it's about not just going, let's, Let's just wing it for the next 10 minutes and it won't matter. You fuck around for 10 minutes in a movie, you could lose the whole thing. It takes a while to get people back from that. Mm -hmm. Gathering up tension, especially in a thriller, takes a lot of effort. You're building blocks and you're keeping everyone abreast with you. As soon as you start, like, just messing about, just that stuff that can be removed. Speaking of stuff that was removed, there was a B-plot in The Sixth Sense, which actually got filmed, wherein Cole brings videotapes to an old man or something. I haven't seen the the latest scenes for quite a while. Um, And this is before we know about the ghosts. And he helps this old man. And then you find out later, oh, that was because a ghost told me to do that. And it's like, well... No, he's... That's his calling. Mm. Like, if he knows he's supposed to be doing that, what what, what are we even leading to with the whole Kira thing? I, I think it, I'm glad they took that out. Hell yeah. Um, because... It shows your hand way too early. Very, It's very significant that the first person you actually see Cole help mm-hmm. is his mother. Yeah. Because when he's in, he's in his blanket fort, mm-hmm. he's terrified, mm-hmm. and he hears his mother crying out in her sleep, mm-hmm. and he doesn't even think. He just bolts out of there to get to her side. Mm-hmm. He do, there's no hesitation, even though he knows that once he's out of there, he's not safe anymore. If he he goes was. straight to her and sits down with her and, and calms her down and helps. And because that, that's his internal compulsion. He's exactly. like Steve Rogers. He's he's got this this drive to help people, um, and you and see he's held that, back by his essential weakness, which is his which fear. Which is fear, exactly. And and you see, and then after that, he then has the confidence to help Kira. And if you think about the fact that mm. if you if you take Malcolm out of those scenes, he does all that on his own. Mm. He gets ready for a few funeral he takes a bus across town everything that he does there he does on his own off his own back knowing um, that at any point some uh, adult could stop him and say hey, kid where are you going yeah who are you what are you doing here um there's a lovely little moment when he walks into kira's room for the first time and he takes um the little jester puppet yeah. um and the, it's half blue and half red and it's like that moment in the church at the beginning where he takes the figure from the um the nativity scene mm-hmm. and and that's like he's stealing things because they they protect him yeah. and you think that's what he's doing here he's taken that to give him courage because it's got the red on it but then as he leaves he gives it to Kira's little sister because either because he doesn't feel like he needs that protection anymore or 
more likely to, to demonstrate the fact that on. exactly his yeah. role has now changed. He is the supporter, not the person who is in need of support. Mm. Um, and this this idea of people being incredibly compassionate, um, as Malcolm says about Vincent at the beginning, unusually compassionate child. Malcolm is the same. He is a very, very compassionate person. He's an incredibly intensely good listener. Um and one of the things that I, I kind of picked up on this time, and I don't know how whether there's any truth in this at all or this is just something that, that I got from it, it occurred to me that as a young boy, Malcolm may very well have had a similar gift to what Cole and Vincent have. He may have been able to hear people and possibly not even known or ever really consciously acknowledged that that was that was happening, that that was going on. It may not have been as strong, but Malcolm has basically developed it into an ability to listen to the living and made his career out of that. Mm. Um, and Cole has that skill with living people as well as dead people. Um, and it would be, I think, very a very positive way for him to develop and grow to utilise that skill as much as he can um, with living people as well. Because there's not a lot... No, actually, never mind. I was going to say there's not a lot of money in ghost whispering. Um, there is. But there is. <laughs> Unfortunately, the yeah. uh, people like John Edward, who are colossal douches, give mm. people... Um, well, basically perform carnival tricks mm. to give people false hope. Indeed. <clears throat> uh, this film is also absolutely crammed to the gills with excellent little details. We've already mentioned a few, uh, but they enrich the world, even if what we're seeing is rundown and depressing. So, for example, Cole's house is really like, you know, bottom threadbare line of poverty. Um, and just in a throwaway comment, um, Lynn says, I quit my jobs in this sort of like ideal situation of what did you do at school today? Jobs, plural. So we just, just that one little S in there, we learn so much about how much she has to work to just keep, to just be this poor. It's astonishing. Um, you know, just how economical uh, a lot of these scenes actually are. That, that, that whole, the scene where um, she, she plays that with Cole and they sort of, they craft their ideal days to each other as though they actually happened, mm, which... I love that scene. Tells you all you need to know about how wistful they are as a, as a you know, how they want things to be happy. Um, and I think I discovered this about while I was watching Bojack Horseman about myself that I can watch the most depressing shit in the world as long as the subjects want to get better, want to be happy, can see some hope on the horizon. If it's all despair, and especially if the ultimate, um, the the end is, it's all fucked. What's the point? Um, then I'm just going to reject it. Because I've dealt with my darkness every single fucking day of my adult life. And I don't, not that I don't have time, I don't want to devote my time to people surrendering to that and just going, well, people are always going to be shit to each other. That, that bothers me. Is it, just 
ask you a quick question. You can cut this out if you want to. Sure. Is it even so much about the idea of hope for you as as much as the idea of change? No, it's hope. Okay. It's not about like constantly changing things. As as um, I watched uh, Shawshank Redemption earlier today. It's wonderful, wonderful film. And I've heard a fan theory that oh, you know, at the end when Red Red says. Um, you know, I hope that I can see my friend and he, you know, he looks like he's about to commit suicide and he doesn't, but we never actually see him get there. That's all in his head. He's actually dead. If you watch The Shawshank Redemption and your fucking take home from it is uh, he just kills himself or it doesn't actually happen, um, you're watching it wrong and you're doing life wrong. Um, it's a judgment call and I'm making it, so sue me. No, don't, actually. Um Here's the actual ending. You're close. The bit on the beach doesn't necessarily need to really happen at all. It's just what Red is imagining whilst on the bus. He might get there. He might not. The important thing is he hopes it will happen. And that's all. That's it. It's being able to envision that blue ocean as opposed to, I can't see it anymore. And that's the fundamental difference between hope and despair. Mm. And I can't watch despair. I can watch it for a little while, and then I go, yeah, nope, not for me, thank you very much. So that's why in New Century, I sorry I keep coming back to it, but it does kind of keep recurring themes of what I deal with and what fascinates me turning up. I started with the worst situation ever, at the worst possible time, one that would actually threaten the future of the human race. And then I just work upwards from there. And that every day we move forwards, things can get better, things can get worse. Which is ultimately life after a severe depression. If you've, if you've been through something really terrible, you're going to have your bad spells. But to be able to keep moving forwards... It feels like Shyamalan is a tourist in depression town sometimes. Like, he's never really felt it before, but he's watched other people get depressed. And he's like, yeah, I really want to do what it's like to be grieving. Not even just that. Emotion town. <laughs> he, he doesn't seem to understand in love, interviews, grief, joy, misery, and yet anger. It's, uh, it's so odd the way it comes across so naturally in this film. Just little moments are like when uh, Lynn and, uh, is pushing coal through the uh, grocery store parking lot in a, uh, a trolley. And, they, you know, she just pushes him fast and they laugh. And then she goes, mm, like that. It's just such a lovely little human moment, which you don't get in his other films. I can't think of it's a lovely little human moment. Maybe the bit where Abigail Breslin hugs her dad, uh, even if he's so sad and angry in signs, that's a wonderful moment. The bit with the mashed potatoes. But they don't happen all that often. Mm. And that's that kind of makes me feel sad for M. Night. But, you know, because he's playing emotion tourist which means he's not developed in that way and yet he can somehow deftly handle it as a tool on a few occasions in his life in a way that's really disarming mm. but part of the the downside of him having this catalog of flawed creations is that when he gets it right you find yourself looking sorry i hate using that phrase that setup I find myself looking at the 
the hits that he gets and just feeling like this is a fluke. Mm. And that takes some of the meaning away from it. Like Donnie Darko, Richard Kelly, if you ever actually watch anything else he's been attached to, you're like, this guy directed Donnie Darko, including the director's cut of Donnie Darko. <laughs> it comes down to it, he must have just had a really good editor. We'll talk about that when we do Donnie Darko. Mm. But um, well, it- I do possess a certain fondness for the complete fuck-up that is Southland Tales, and especially its soundtrack. Mm. Uh, it's nowhere near the match for Donnie Darko. It did strike me, actually, watching some of the extras after um, uh, The Sixth Sense, that so much of what makes this amazing actually comes from other people. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't have any part in that, by any means, um, but the score is huge mm. in terms of, of getting the feeling across for this film. The performances from the central characters are a massive part of it, and not all of that comes from... The director. Mm. You know, so much of it comes from the individual. Well, everybody brought their A game. Yeah. Their A plus game. Mm. And I've, I've heard, you know, when I've been talking about doing these films, I've heard people go, I don't like The Sixth Sense all that much. I'm hoping by the time we get to the end of this, if you folks have been listening who have never liked The Sixth Sense all that much, you might go, oh, maybe I'll watch it again sometime. Maybe I'll, yeah. Because it, let me tell you. It really benefits from rewatching on multiple occasions. If not only for just going, oh, and he was dead the whole time, oh, and all those little things, but just the little details like that. You know, um, the the wisp of grey hair on on Vincent's head, uh, mirrored in Cole has that little wisp on, on the back of his head. I don't know like, if you only ever saw this on VHS, you might have missed that completely. Mm. Yeah, things like that. Um, the the use of colour. Shall we talk about that? Yes, let's. Okay. Because after you've seen this, yeah. it's really hard to walk through the world and not go, oh, red, oh, watch red. out. Oh, there's some green. Mm. Um, so what does red mean and what should people be looking out for when they're looking for red in this film? Um, it can mean quite a lot of things depending on your interpretation of each individual scene. However, the overarching theme is one of an intense emotional moment. Um, You can interpret it as whenever Red turns up, that means that there is a ghostly presence around, even if it's just Malcolm. Um, I I think one of the the people who worked on the film said that it was uh, representative of something that had been... Uh, tainted by contact with the other world, but I, there's a few instances where I think that can't be right. Well, for example, the, <laughs> there, there's some moments like um, that the faded reds, like uh, at one point, um, Lynn's wearing sort of a sort of pinky orange sh- sweater, which may mean something or it may mean nothing at mm. all. And Anna wears a or has a dark pink blanket over yeah. herself a couple of times. And Cole well. has uh, a, a pink blanket when he's at the hospital and he reveals everything to uh, Malcolm, which suggests sort of a faded um, peak emotion. Uh, and the fact that when they're walking along this sort of orangey brick pavement, it has sort of a very reddish register on the colour scale but so it's it's basically peaks of emotion almost always negative emotion and um, uh, M. Night suggests that it's uh, that the 
it's there to give you clues to where the spirit world has touched our world. In a literal sense, it can't be because it's just read things. Mm. But in a cinematic sense, it absolutely is. Yeah. Well, traditionally, um, in, in sort of a very primitive sense, that's exactly what red is. It's what marks the transition between um, the, the living world and the other world. It's not black. Um, black is, is when you're actually in the other world. Red is the gateway. Mm. Um, it marks birth. And and it usually marks death as well in mm-hmm. in sort of instances where people have violent deaths, which primitively was very very common. Loss of virginity. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's you know synonymous with any, the colour for love for uh, the heart. Yeah. Um, so marriage. You know, there are so many rites of passage that have red as a, a significant colour element. Red-blooded passion. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, there's 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 two very specific themes of the red that I noticed, which is that sometimes it's used as a warning, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's used as protection. Um, Cole's blanket fort mm-hmm. is bright red. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that he picks up and keeps in there, which he thinks will watch over him and protect him, are bright red. Um, but they, it does turn up in so many instances where it's hinting at there being presences from the spirit mm. world around, down to um, when Lynn is looking at the old photographs of Cole on the wall. Mm-hmm. Her fingernail, her polish, fin- nail, nail polish, polish is, is bright red. red. Yep. Um, and um, and she is specifically using her fingers to um, to touch the little flashes of light in the, mm-hmm. the photographs. Um, so it is it's a marker. Um, when he goes to Kira's house, you've got the the warning of the bright red of the roses and mm-hmm. her stepmother's coat smothered in red. Um, but at the same time, there's also the box with the video in that's under her bed has mm. uh, red lines all over it. Um, so it's it kind of points to a path to follow uh, to something important as well. Mm. And I think it's it's possibly a case of um, it's that combination. It's ghosts crying out in colour. Yeah, um, but it, it, you can interpret it as that the warning and um, attention, as in you need to look at this, mm-hmm. aren't necessarily separate things you can it can be this is important you need to come over here and investigate this however be cautious don't just go rushing in there um is a a strong element to it as well but always 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 whenever you see anything red pink orange any of those tones it's in in this film it's basically saying pay attention to what happens next Mm mm-hmm the church door, the, uh, the the gateway to this whole thing, bright red. Mm. Anna's dress when she's at her anniversary dinner on her own, bright red. The balloon at the party, these are the ones where it's like the most bright red, the most overtly filmed. Uh, the balloon at the party just before Cole's incredibly traumatic scenario, bright red. The door handle for the uh, um, basement, which uh, Malcolm cannot get into, mm. bright red. Um, Cole's sweater at the party, bright red uh his arm cuts faded dark red um and of course yeah the stepmother covered in red what does green mean then in this scenario i was trying to puzzle that out because it doesn't turn up that often um the most prominent moment is lynn is wearing a bright green top at the party Mm -hmm. um 
But I'm uh, racking my brains to think of any other significant ones. There's hedges when they're walking through uh, Philadelphia streets. That's when they're on the uh, orangey red pavements. There's Perrier bottles at the anniversary dinner. And in suburbia, once they get out of Philly, the lawns are all green, enclosing the houses. All of those seem to point towards a sense of protection. I could be inferring a bit too much there. It, it, it Basically... A sense of protection that actually rings false. Mm. The, as I in, was like, going to say, there's an element she's, of She may be co- covered in, in, you know, she's got her green sweater on, but she can't protect Cole from danger. Mm. The hedges, sort of like hiding the houses, don't actually keep out ghosts. The mm. Perrier bottles, Malcolm's sitting at the table right there. It's not going to keep the ghost out. And, of course, the suburban lawns, doesn't matter how bright green there are, there's rotten fucking things going on behind closed doors. Mm. Yeah. It could simply be that uh, the green on the colour scale is there to say, don't worry, everyone remain calm if the red is the warning. Mm. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or just to to offset the reds. But you're right about it doesn't... It seems almost as though it's meant to be soothing, but it's not. And the other thing is as well, Lynn at that party Mm -hmm. is trying to be something she isn't. Um, and it becomes quickly apparent that, as you say, she can't protect Cole mm. in that particular scenario. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Blue is a much more um, soothing colour when it turns up. Mm. Uh, the uh, Again, other reasons to uh, re-watch it again, if only for being able to see stuff that uh, you didn't spot the first time, that, uh, you know, Malcolm being dead... For a start, the whole premise of the twist rests upon us taking for granted after the initial scene when he is shot by Vincent that he survived. He's sitting there, so obviously he's alive. Our brain doesn't go to, oh, he's probably a ghost. There's no real indication that he is. What he's doing is so mundane. He's writing notes in his book. He's wearing boring clothes that... um, it, the fact that he keeps wearing these boring clothes throughout the film makes us feel that he is a creature of habit in that regard. Um, and he does change them up a little bit, but they're all clothes he wore that evening. He put the sweatshirt on for a brief while, and he had the, the three-piece suit with the uh, uh, waistcoat, which occasionally covers what would have been the bullet hole. And, of course, he's never looked around to his back. But um, we take for granted that Malcolm doesn't dress in a particularly interesting way. Uh, we take for granted that he interacts with people when he doesn't, when he talks to um, uh, Anna, and obviously he, she's not hearing it at all, literally. Um, we, When Cole comes back and uh, his mother's sitting there with Malcolm across, our human brain says, well, obviously a conversation just happened because his mother is a little bit wary of Cole uh, because the bumblebee pendant thing happens a little bit after that. Mm. Um, but... The uh, also this is uh, this is after the shit that's happened at school. So she's well, when she's sitting there, she's thinking about what am I going to do about Cole? Let's sit down and talk to him. So effectively, while Malcolm sat there thinking, what am I going to do about Cole? They're effectively going through the same motions as they would of a conversation. They're just not interacting with each other. Mm. Um, 
But we assume that Lynn has volunteered personally details, which Malcolm then goes into when he mentions the upset words. And we then cut to Lynn seeing the upset words. You're like, well, obviously she's told him. And it's all about us taking that for granted. And the fact that a year has passed and we're told that explains sort of the marital rift he's now stuck in, his low state of mind, why he doesn't appear to be injured. Like, you know, you'd imagine he'd favor his stomach a bit if he'd only just been shot last week. Mm. Um, and just watch every time that he's around other people with Cole and just imagine Cole sitting there on his own. And remember, this came out just a few months before Fight Club as well. So it's kind of a... I can't see why we, we sat through the whole of uh, Fight Club. I didn't immediately go, well, six cents. Um, especially since Ed Norton looks like a grown-up Haley Joel Osment. Although Haley Joel Osment did not grow up to look like Ed Norton. He grew up to be like a... Thicker Haley Joel Osment, <laughs> but uh, he's got a lovely smile. There's also um, an element of, as you say, there's certain things that we take for granted, and a lot of that is that the adults in Cole's life are doing more to help him than they actually are. Because those scenes where Malcolm turns up, where Malcolm follows him into the church after he's been sat there writing the notes, we assume he has been drafted in by somebody in a position of, of yeah. professional... Uh, responsibility to investigate Cole's situation. Um, the scene where he turns up at the school, we assume that a, a headmaster or, or you has know, somebody in authority in, yeah. has called him in because he's Cole's doctor. When he's in the hospital and Malcolm turns up in his room, we assume that the hospital has sent him in there to talk to him because something you know, needs to be addressed. When you realise at the end that actually none of that has happened, that through all of this, Cole has been through teachers, doctors, social workers, and none of them have been able to help him, then you can really understand the depths of his despair when Malcolm says he can't be his therapist anymore. Because at that point, Cole has nobody. The only person he has... Literally the only person he has other than Malcolm is his mother. And he is terrified that if he tells her the truth, she'll turn away from him as well. And at that point, it actually becomes quite significant that Malcolm is a, is a ghost already. Because he knows that if anybody is going to get this, if anybody is going to grasp this, mm. it's going to be Malcolm. And throughout their whole tenure together, Cole deliberately does not say to Malcolm, you know you're dead, right? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't think it would really occur to him to say that to any of them, to be honest. He is, he is a very courteous and considerate child, and, and that would be potentially a hurtful thing to say to somebody. Yeah. Um, and Although, he seems to get that. the delivery at the end... Um, I see people, they don't know they're dead. That's different to his mm. original delivery. I see dead people. Very specifically, I see dead people who became mimetic after that, um, which suggests Cole may actually have been saying quite a bit different during that whole speech, and Malcolm was just going, uh-huh, 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 and just tuning out the bits which very much applied to him. Because mm. if you watch that scene, we're closing on Malcolm, and it's all about Malcolm, but he's just going... Holy crap, this boy. And he's not believing him, mm. but he is realising at that stage, this boy is more troubled than I think I can handle. Yeah. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. 
And also, if you if you watch uh, the way Cole, where his eyes are, in a lot of those scenes, he does not hold eye contact with Malcolm very often. Mm. He doesn't. He, there are There's scenes scene where he, he actively closes his eyes. Yeah. Or hides he, behind the sofa when he's talking. Yeah, and I did wonder, actually, can Cole see his bullet wound? I would say if there was a moment when Malcolm had his jacket off and turned around, then yeah, because there's that kid who's like, I'll show you where my dad keeps his gun. By the way, why was there not a... Like, there was a significant drop in bacon sales after Babe. Why was there not a significant drop in child-related gun deaths from accidentally finding their dad's guns after the sixth sense? Did that not smack the dads in the face and make them go, shit, I need to put a lock on this thing. Shit, I need to put this in a cabinet. Honey, I don't think those dads are watching the sixth sense. Don't make sweeping judgments. (laughs) I'm asking why you're making statements. Anyway, James Newton Howard's Astonishing Score, as you mentioned... Uh, delivers uneasy, ethereal, otherworldly choral strings to convey the unknown forces at work, as well as nerve-shredding, jangled cues at the point of terror, but also sweet piano and clarinet to emotionally underpin the moments of connection between these isolated characters. It is his finest work to me, and again, elevates the film in a way that a moody, weebly synth score by John Carpenter would have stepped on every scene. It's breathtaking, literally. And there are actually, speaking of which, breaths all over the soundscape. If you uh, if you watch the film, there's a lot of moments where it feels like um, there's kind of a... in the um, edit, and that's because there are thousands of different breaths and they don't just have human breaths there's bear breaths in there and the idea that these breaths are the the register the the the, the sensation of the sixth sense itself the the that you can't see it and you can't literally in the in the cinema feel it but we can with the soundscape make you aware that there's something else there. And I have, again, used a lot of that approach in New Century in ways so subtle that most people on listening won't notice unless I tell them, go back, listen to that one scene, there is a bit where such and such happens. Mm. Um, Because ultimately, if I do it well, you shouldn't hear. You shouldn't be automatically aware. It should register on some subconscious level. Mm. Because I don't really want to be smacking people in the face and go, look what I've done here. Well, it, it is a very subtle thing. And this 
slight aside here, and I don't want to derail the conversation by talking about something different, but that that sensation, that feeling that Cole describes, that you feel like you're falling down and the prickly things on the back of your neck and all the yeah. rest of it. Um, not everybody gets those sensations. Mm. And it's it's been linked to actually feeling your nervous system turning on. Mm-hmm. Basically, you, you, the whole thing that goes into action and sets your fight or flight reflex off, mm-hmm. um, that turning on to such a, a tiny degree that you don't necessarily feel the physiological symptoms of your alert system going on. You don't get the sweating, you don't get the fast breathing, you don't get the heart racing mm-hmm. yet. But that is the initial stages of basically going, something is here that you might want to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of, it, it could be, because all of this is very theoretical and because the movements are so subtle, it's very difficult to, to prove. And most people would say, you know, these are chemical changes that you can't possibly feel consciously. Certain um, reactions and, and relaxing um, sensations are those uh, those systems turning themselves off. Um, and again, that's something that not everybody has a, a conscious awareness of and wouldn't necessarily have those feelings. So when you're working in such subtle um, switches, if you like, they're not necessarily going to work for everybody, but it's very gratifying when they do. Mm. Other thing to look out for, the eyes of the city. There are statues everywhere that have this kind of looming presence. They kind of convey the sense that that the characters within the film are being watched simply by applying the human form to the architecture of the city to to make it something that that itself is otherworldly, to make it something that mimics the human world but isn't actually of the human world, which... A lot of statues often feel like mm. they're this sort of frozen effigy of humanity. Mm. I <laughs> think part of that works into the idea of Philadelphia being such an old city. Mm, mm. Um, they, uh, Mr. Cunningham talks about that in the, the scene in the classroom where he talks about how old Philadelphia is and that um, late 1700s it was the capital of America and um, that there's this reverence for the past, which, you know, in in countries where they have architecture and, and um, historical monuments and things that go back centuries, that doesn't seem that old. The idea of something from the, you know, the turn of the uh, 19th century being considered to be, like, this massively historic thing... You know, we've we've got people living in houses that were built back then that that's still around. It's there's there's. We lived in one just now. <laughs> Not quite. Turn of the eighteenth century, no, nineteenth century, beginning of the eighteen hundreds. Was that that house was the beginning of the nineteen hundreds? Really? Mm. Felt earlier. No, late Victorian. Get rid of it. <laughs> I'm inclined to agree, given how riddled with damp it was. Um, Awful place. Yes, I know, but um, but yeah. So, sort of this this feeling of this city that's surrounded in and steeped in the history of 
America as a whole, the idea of it then being full of all the people that were there doesn't seem like that much of a stretch. Mm. And the ghosts, when they are finally brought in, there's a definite turning point in the film. Um, the the veil is lifted away and the movie changes gear. Um, it's when Cole tells Malcolm about what is going on. And I, I can't imagine what it'd be like to, to watch this film and not actually know what's going on with Cole until that point. Because they play it like he's psychologically uh, traumatised, but you don't know exactly why and how. It makes perfect sense to like you almost forget that he hasn't told him until he does, and it makes this really significant turnabout. But when you finally see the ghosts, they're not showy. They don't use glowy effects. So they're not floating, um, though they are very dramatic. They seem more like the violent, unhinged inmates at an asylum that have been abandoned on the streets of Philadelphia with nobody to take care of them. And the only person who can see them is Cole. And that is fucking terrifying. For them and for him. Just the idea that they that, that no one's there for them. And that they've just been left. It's uh, like... um. You, you hear about um, hospitals that don't know what to do with with you know severely damaged people and just dump them as you know you're homeless now bye and then and then rush away and so the, the society can now deal with this 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 person who really genuinely needs help and that puts the onus on Cole's position of helping them far more of like as soon as you realize that's what he's there to do it kind of like slots everything into place that he's the one who goes around gathering them up and sending them on their way there's always going to be far too many for him to deal with and he's going to have a constant struggle to be able to retain himself in amongst the flood of attention he's going to get but it is beyond a doubt that what he would be doing is a vital public service that he will get no credit for from the living. There's a film called uh, R.I.P.D. that came out a few years ago with Ryan Reynolds and it's a piece of shit. Uh, It's basically men in black with ghosts and they're the police department who hunt down ghosts. We saw about 40 minutes of it. It's got some of the worst millennial rubber I've ever seen terrible script it's an awful film and it was put together by Universal who have the rights to Hellboy who could have made a BPRD film instead mm. why is there no like like I mean this is more of a, a TV series isn't it the Ghost Whisperer or something like where someone goes week to week to, to deal with everybody's mm. fucking problems you're right about the, the uh, similarity with Hellboy though because fantasy laden though that is it's about uh, facilitating communication mm. with beings that we don't understand and can't always interact mm. with very well, rather than simply hunting them down and, and rounding them up to mm. deal with them aggressively. Another parallel uh, movie, which uh, the uh, would be more suitable to show kids, Paranorman from Leica, the uh, guys who are putting out Kubo and the Two Strings, which we all really hope does well. Uh, It is a wonderful film. It's basically 
I mean, Norman already has come to terms with the fact that he sees dead people. He's cool with it. And uh, the ghosts are all really, you know, pretty kind of pleasant to be around straight from the off. But there's that same sort of sense of that the that the living are completely oblivious to all of this stuff. Mm. And there are scary things in it that uh, Norman has to come to terms with. Um, but it's kind of the next step on from The Sixth Sense. And uh, it's a fantastic animated film. Got nowhere near the love it deserves. I recommend you track that one down on DVD or Blu-ray. Mm. Looks brilliant in HD. Um Shyamalan gets a minor role in this film, as it should be. You'll notice, by the way, that the more he's in his films... The worse they are. The worse they are. In uh, Lady in the Water, he is written into his own story as a man who will write a book that will inspire a future president to change the world. But he himself must be the sacrificial lamb. He'll pay the terrible price. He is Gandhi Jesus Wow. Kennedy. Kennedy. Like, no, no, because Kennedy's the president in this case. Oh, true. I was thinking about the fact that he dies, but... But, uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jesus. I mean, okay, right. The character, I can understand putting that in your movie because it's a, you know, there are ways of conveying that. It's a bit pretentious if you write it yourself because you're basically a writer and you're saying, look, the world is bad and we've got to change things. And there's this character who says that and then he gets killed because um, of, of all the you know people who don't like that. Um, but like, appointing yourself as that guy and having him not be a deeply flawed character who is fully fleshed out and having that be really the only thing about him that you explore... I mean, yeah, don't do that, M. Night. I think, you know, especially in films where you basically literally have a critic sneer at uh, uh, movie tropes. Um, You know, basically just biting your thumb at the critics who don't like your movies and literally have him savaged by a snarf or whatever the fuck it was. Oh, it was a scrunt. Actually, there's a there's a bit where Tommy Tomasino says that everyone's um, so everyone in his stupid play is uh, was self conscious and unrealistic. It almost seemed there like M Night was sort of prepping to like say, oh, so I suppose the critics are going to say everyone in this movie is self conscious and unrealistic. Well, I'm going to make you look like Tommy Tomasino. So that the signs were all there that he was getting ready to basically, you know, go to war with his critics. Mm. I mean that's. One of the things that, as a, a, an artist, that you need, need, more than anything else, is to be able to take criticism, to be able to ignore criticism that is of absolutely no help to you, and to just let it roll off your back and go, right, don't need that, thank you very much anyway, but just going to get by without it, and to be able to take on board criticism that's actually genuinely helpful for people who know what the fuck they're talking about. If you succeed in doing this, tell me how. Because basically, as soon as anyone goes, Alex Shaw is such an arrogant twat, I go, oh, God, I am, I am. Fuck, 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 why, what is wrong with me? And then that, I get, God damn, for weeks, I'm stewing on that kind of stuff. You know, I, I question myself. I am my own biggest critic. 
So basically, all it takes is for someone to to sort of lay down something that I've always, you know, been slightly worried about for me to go. He's right. He's totally right. Oh my God, Jesus Christ! Mm. Well, uh, that's that's when things cut, isn't it? Not not just in that that instance, but yeah. if you if somebody throws an insult at you or a criticism your way, and in your head it's got a grain of truth in it, mm. and it's something that you have worried about yourself, or it's something that you've got a complex about, that is going to cut and stick so much harder mm. than if somebody just throws a thoughtless insult mm. that it means nothing to you. But I am by and large very self-aware. I'm able to look at like if something bugs me, I always ask myself, do I do this thing? Am I lashing out against people who are doing this because I do this thing? No, wait a second. Because I always do this, 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 and this to counter that. And I just I, I, I super analyze absolutely everything to the point where I overthink. Um, but I will never criticize people for overthinking. Uh, occasionally, unless what you, you know, if, if you're coming up with a fan theory that, that whereby you're like, oh, actually, Red's dead, he killed himself. No, no, you're wrong on that one. Mm. But uh, that's not overthinking. That's underthinking. I was going to say, if That's failing to grasp you're, the you're whole point of this film is about hope. Out, you know. Even if he didn't pinch the uh, theme from that episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? The bit with the cupboards all opening and, you know, it's all in one shot and uh, uh, Lynn goes out of the room and then she comes back in, the cupboards are all open. It's like, ah! that's from Poltergeist. That exact same thing happens with a bunch of chairs on the table. And that's fine, frankly. I think it's, it's overt enough of a scenario for it to... Li- that That's an homage, if anything. Mm. Uh, and ultimately... Putting yourself up, you know, and saying, look, we want to be as good as one of the best uh, ghost stories ever put to film. Not so bad. I'm, I'm very forgiving of homages. I do fucking loads of them all the time. Myself. Um, also, almost all the food in those cupboards is in red containers. Oh, seriously? Yep. Yeah. There are Cheerios boxes and tins of coffee, and I checked, and most of what's in the cupboards mm. is red. Um... The rules of ghosts are, are adhered to the whole way through. There's the reduced temperature when they get emotional. Uh, as you said earlier, the uh, sense of falling and the hair standing on the head, sense of being not alone, they don't know that they're dead. That's across the board, that all seems to be accurate, which again, with their sense of self delusion, ties in with them being deeply disturbed individuals who have been left without care. Um, which seems really cruel for that to be the natural order of things. For there to be you know, some souls that just get that just drop through the cracks and end up stuck, mm. and for there to be no anything that 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 basically cleans that stuff up, and 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 it just don't forget though there is no for something to be the natural order it can't be cruel because it doesn't have there's not a plan behind it. Yeah, I suppose it's like saying that's a bit cruel that bear eating that deer. Do bears eat deers? No. It's a bit cruel, that wolf eating that deer. Yeah, especially for the deer. Not so much for the wolf. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, when there is a, a, the, the, the second turning point, first off, the veil is lifted away and we're, we're shown um, that Cole can see dead people and then we see loads of them thick and fast after that. Um, but then when it changes gear again is when Cole actually has to confront his fear when he has everything stripped away from him uh, when 
Kira bursts into his uh, his sanctuary. His uh, he's made himself a little church, basically. Mm. Yeah. It's a little red cathedral in his bedroom, mm. um, and it's invaded. And then when he returns to her, and this is, M Night said this on the uh, the, the making of materials. Um, she has the the sheet over her head, and he has to pull that off to reveal the human underneath the sheets to demystify the ghost to face the fear by acclimatizing yourself to the reality Mm. to not be horrified by their pain which is ultimately what they're driven by Mm. and very specifically in that scene as well for all of Malcolm's support and help and advice that that first confrontation Cole has to make on his own Mm. He's, he is entirely alone at that point. It's night time, he's in his own home. Malcolm is, is nowhere around and wouldn't be able to see Kira even if he was there. We know that's true. Mm. Um, he has to do it all on his own. Um, and what you were saying about the, the idea of these, these ghosts walking around with nobody listening to them because they can't hear them, can't see them, can't comprehend that they're there. I think there's, a, there's an element of the, the story that is about communication between people in general um, that there are so many people who have incredibly strong emotional uh, drives within them that are uh, that are negative and cause them great difficulties and they find it nigh on impossible to communicate these to other people because they just don't get it. They don't see them. They don't hear them. It, it's, it's summed up quite well, actually, when, um, when Cole's trying to explain to Malcolm how he knows they're there. Because Malcolm starts off that, that interaction by saying, I don't see anything. And Cole goes to great detail about how he knows they're there. He feels this. He feels that. It's all about feelings and sensing. And Malcolm's response is... I don't see anything. He's just told you, Malcolm, you don't see it, you feel it. They only see what they want to see. Exactly. And that's the reality of day-to-day interaction for so many people, that you can, you can walk through the world being what you are, feeling what you feel, and interacting with people who will never, ever see it. And going through it feeling like you will never, ever share that with anybody because nobody would understand it. And one of the most valuable things in the world that someone can have in that particular situation is for somebody to see them and hear them and at least attempt to understand what it is that they're feeling. And that's what Cole is doing. He is providing a a point of contact, if nothing else, and I would imagine that just the acknowledgement would be enough for a lot of these ghosts. Just the fact that Cole looks at them and doesn't just look straight through them. The central theme of this movie is uh, communication, which is probably why it resonates with us so strongly. Um, it even comes down to just what appears to be a com- comedy scene where it imbecilic husband-to-be and his um, extremely romantic bride-to-be are uh, trying to buy an engagement ring. And um, 
he doesn't want anything too fancy and it you know comes across as a, a, a shallow cheapskate and she comes across as someone very soulful and you know like i say it's played for laughs and uh um anna could just say you know what uh, get any ring in the shop, keep the receipt, because I'll see you in a few months' time when this relationship doesn't work out. But she actually kind of tries to encourage the romantic one of the two of them and just sort of like, you know, she doesn't stamp on that and she she hasn't lost that. She hasn't become jaded in the in her loneliness, which is kind of hopeful for Anna. It suggests that there is a life that she can reclaim after um, Malcolm and her part ways. And the central conflict between Lynn and Cole, which gets resolved in that extremely um, drawn out, but in- incredibly emotionally, like it's, it's it puts you through an emotional ringer, but the scene in the car where he reveals his secret to her, uh, it's all been about a conflict of trust like she can't trust him, he can't reveal what the problem is, and um, it's it's always been the fear that he's had to conquer, and his reward at the end of that, and her reward is that they basically have each other back, which is all that they ever you know really needed. They've got a broken little family. The father, from the sounds of it, he just left. He's uh, not someone who takes particular. Um, interest in the, in the uh, family left behind which is every kid's nightmare really as you say Sharon since Cole only has his mother it's imperative that they be able to be honest with each other and that she can accept what he can do and who that will make him mm. and she is very emotionally honest with him yeah throughout the film there are, there's scenes where she is angry and she's honest about the fact that she's angry with him but then when she's calmed down and she wants to reconcile, she's honest about that as well. She doesn't have that streak of sort of stubborn pride that says, no, I won't talk to you. I won't, you know, I'm going to maintain this idea that I'm cross with you. Um, when she's scared for him, she tries to not let it on to a degree that it will scare him too. But she does let it through a little bit. Hmm. And the whole the, the finale being like once they've gotten out of the, the Kira situation and that the, like cartoonishly vile stepmother is banged to rights. Um, that the it, it's it's, just, it's basically a series of bittersweet um, partings and reunitings and partings again. The partings are this is a good thing. It's not a. It's it's that something has been accomplished, something has been achieved, and that they that Cole can now go and go and do his own thing, and that Malcolm can now go, and he and his uh, mother, and Cole and his mother are reunited, and effectively Anna is reunited with the rest of the world, as Malcolm goes and takes the spirit world with him. But I say again, I, I introduced him with superlatives, but um, I, this is the yardstick 
to child performances that I always hold other children accountable for. Most other kids, I think We Hate Movies nailed it with this one. They look at how adult actors, I think most other kid actors who act way too precocious, look at how adult actors speak and try to imitate that. They don't necessarily come off as children by doing so. Um, Osmond basically came off as an incredibly alarmingly genuine kid in this. And to that end, whenever I, I see a, a, a kid that I'm like, well, this, like the, the kid in um, uh, Lights Out was probably the best thing in it. Uh, I, I just go, yeah, this is, uh, you know, approaching Osmond in this particular film levels of, um, uh, of uh, in t- just performance and intensity and, and truth to the character. Because it's not just about coming on and just being super intense. DiCaprio can do that all day long. That doesn't necessarily make you a phenomenal actor. Um, You know, Jared Leto was pretty intense as the Joker. That doesn't necessarily make it a great performance. Ultimately, it's about finding the biting point a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. You know, working with your director to actually find the ideal level for those scenes. And the fact that Cole is so varied. If he was intense the whole time... But there's times when he's like a little bit um, cheeky and he's, uh, you know, he, he, he gets scared and he gets kind of sarcastic at times and he gets sad and he gets angry and bitter and he just goes through this whole range. Mm. That's what it is that Osmond shoulders what, you know, the, the kind of performance that most adults are not capable of mm. as Anna says at the beginning that you know that that um, Malcolm uh, helps children through situations where most adults would piss on themselves just this in, in what Cole's going through is horrifying and the sheer vulnerability and lack of ability to defend himself against what he's up against and that you know, just telling people about it would get him sent to the nut house. Ironically, there's it's so much to heap on these young shoulders, and um, Osmond just pulls it off. And his face when he's saying goodbye to Malcolm, it's astonishing. Mm. And ultimately, this is really all you need to do in your career for, as, as an actor: just one phenomenal performance that everyone will remember you for. You make your mark in cinematic history. And he did too, because frankly, I think his David is fan bloody testing as well from AI. It's a more contentious film. A lot fewer people love it. But uh, it's uh, he brought his A game again. I think um, a lot of that in terms of, of child actors doing outstanding performances comes down to the dialogue as well, mm. because it, it is often a downfall of. Uh, writers who are scripting for children that they give them too many smart ass precocious yeah. lines because it, if you listen to the way kids actually talk some of them particularly smart kids yeah occasionally they will say very precocious things but it is not the be all and end all of everything they say mm. it's a smattering most of what they say is is normal mundane kid level stuff um, but it's not just the way he delivers the words. Um, there's there's a subtlety about um, Haley Joel Osment's facial performance in this. Mm. The, the, he knows what Cole's thinking at each time. There's one moment that absolutely stood out for me, and it's when they're in the hospital mm-hmm. and Malcolm is telling him the story of himself. Mm-hmm. And Cole is looking 
uh, nervous and he's anxious about what's going to happen. And when Malcolm says about he meets this really cool little boy, he just there's a just, yeah, just a lifts. moment and he's. Because no one said that about him just before. The, but it's tiny. Mm. It's this little fraction of a smile. And like you say, his face just lifts just for a brief second mm. and then goes back down again when things become more I, intense. I don't think M. Night told him that because he hasn't managed that subtlety with anyone else. Mm. Not even like uh, um, the kid who played Lucius in Gladiator turns up in Unbreakable and uh, Kieran Culkin in... Um, or Rory Culkin, one of the Culkins in uh, Science. Mm. Too many Culkins. There's way too many Culkins. <laughs> He's never managed that level of subtlety with another child actor, and uh, I think that just it was Osmond just knew what the hell he was doing. From the looks of it, he had a very smart father who also did a lot of rehearsal with him, and I would imagine, unlike at least one Culkin, his parents didn't fuck him over. I hope it wasn't his dad who advised him to run himself into a wall. Yeah, I hope his dad was actually quite cross with him for doing that, because Jesus, kid. Um, but, you know, pain is temporary, but at the same time, you're a little too young to be experiencing literal physical pain just for your art. But, uh, you know, it's done now. Just don't do that, kids. Don't don't follow, don't follow. do what Hayley Joel Osment does. Um, but Bruce Willis, back to his performance. Malcolm Crowe is crumpled, well-intentioned, sad, vulnerable, emotionally hurt, understated not things bruce willis does often seriously especially not nowadays but when he does he does them well i i miss this bruce willis because um the smug bald self-important grim quiet snarky man that replaced him is not what he could have been. And like I said, this Bruce is in there. It's just way down. And you just got to get past the layers. And it requires him to be hungry for a role again. And unfortunately, when you get to a certain level of stardom, you may never be hungry again. Literally. You, you literally may never be hungry for a meal or a role or an experience again. It sounds like a curse, frankly. Getting everything you want. Getting that level of power and carte blanche and being able to call your own shots and be executive produce every single movie you're in. And, you know, be able to talk down the writer, the director, all the other stars and make sure you get everything you want. Mm. You watch him in G.I. Joe 2... He's just there on holiday. He's like, oh, hey, this is my gun rack. How's it going? He's a, a cameo. And watching too many Bruce Willis movies recently, he just seems like a cameo who happens to star in his own movies. Mm. Like, let's all thank Bruce for turning up. I and that's not what people to pay to see, you know? They want to see, shit, that Bruce Willis. Or this Bruce Willis. and um, But that doesn't mean I'm not forever grateful for this performance because it is heartbreaking. And very reined in. And very professional and accomplished. And very... humble, I suppose, is probably the best way of putting it. A word, again, not often associated with Bruce Willis. Mm. So, yeah. In conclusion, the most important thing about this story is that if Malcolm was alive 
all along, it would still have been superb. Everyone focuses on the twist, but if at the end of the day he comes back to his wife and he talks to Anna and she says, let's start over again, you think, and life has been brought back into what feels like symbolically a dead relationship, and that's a wonderful ending. The fact that, you know, we get this twist is, like I say, the cherry on top. But focusing on it and saying, well, that's all the film has, which some people have actually done, does a dreadful disservice to everything we spent the last 90 minutes talking about. Also, the whole gag about he's dead, he's dead all the time, he's dead, let's spoil his uh, sixth sense. There's a whole generation of kids now growing up who were not alive when the sixth sense was released. When you make that joke the focus of your discussion about this movie... You ruin that aspect of it and get kids to fixate on that aspect of it when they see it. It's shitty behaviour. Don't do it. Same as Shamalama Ding Dong. Even James Newton Howard was trolling The Sixth Sense. The last track on the soundtrack is called Malcolm is Dead, which means I couldn't play the soundtrack for Lyra or leave the CD lying around. So I just renamed it Malcolm on iTunes. Ultimately, the film needs to be treated for what it is. It is an unfolding mystery. I'm focusing on the butler did it. It's pretty reductive. The fact that Malcolm was on another plane of existence the whole time isn't what's remarkable. It's the fact that he used his compulsion in life to help children in order to help Cole and encourage him to find his own terms on his abilities rather than being bullied by the dead and the living that sets Cole on the right course. It's wrongs being righted. It's a path being cleared, which is what a two-hour movie can do superbly. Hmm. What are you thinking, Mama? You think I'm a freak? Look at my face. I would never think that about you. Ever. Got it? Got it. Grandma says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She just likes it a lot. What? Grandma comes to visit me sometimes. Oh, that's very wrong. Grandma's gone, you know that. I know. She wanted me to tell you. Oh, she wanted me to tell you she saw you dance. She said, when you were little, you and her had a fight, right before your dance recital. You thought she didn't come see you dance. She did. She hid in the back so you wouldn't see. That you were like an angel. She said you came to the place where they buried her. Asked her a question. She said the answer is 
You said about how uh, Cole's father never appears in this film. You, nobody says his name. Um, Malcolm and Cole discuss him briefly. He forgot it in a drawer, suggests that he left fairly abruptly. Yeah. Um, Referring to the watch. The only things that Cole seems to have to remember him by are a pair of glasses that he's taken the lenses out of um, and the watch, which, as you say, was was broken and left behind. Both of which um, seem to be abandoned midway yeah. through the film. Indeed. Um, however, Cole attends what appears to be quite an expensive private school. They have a very posh uniform. That's true, actually. Kids in uniform. Yeah, mm. which is too big for him. Um, it's all leather chairs and, um, you know, very swish building. Maybe the father's only paying for Cole's <coughs> education and that's it. That's That seemed to be the case, yeah. Um, like, I'll make sure that my son gets educated um, properly. Everything else about his well-being, fuck that. Absolutely. Jesus Christ. How conditional do you have to be to see your ex-wife struggle with two jobs just to maintain the house while you pay God knows how much on a private education? I had not thought about that. Lynn has to go year after year through that, you know knowing that if she misses a day off work uh, for, for because she's sick, because she's overworked, um, then they may not be able to make rent while Cole goes to this fancy fucking school that he's miserable at as well. Mm. And all his knowing that those friends, were the terms. Yeah, all his school friends seem to be wealthy. Yep. None of them can relate to him. Mm. The fact that at, at the party, Lynn mentions Chuck E. Cheese and the yeah. um, the mother just is like, what? Who, You've never where? heard of Charles Entertainment Cheese? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's some posh school friends. Yeah. Um, and I'm willing to bet, since his uniform looks relatively new, that his, his dad is covering the costs of that as well. Because if it was just that he was there by virtue of a scholarship, he'd mm. have, and Lynn was trying to cover all the additional costs, he would have a second-hand old uniform. uniform. which didn't quite fit properly. Yeah. Put together. Mm. Yes. But again, that's all done visually. That's not something that's ever, you don't get masses of exposition about it. It's not, obviously not considered to be all that relevant. It is background detail. Which, again, we may be inferring a hell of a lot that M. Knight was like, would, if told this, go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I wish you hadn't. That, that's why I sometimes I just don't want to know how much the directors uh, and writers know about their own work. Because if, I, if I've inferred a hell of a lot and it's like, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. And then, whoa, jeez. 
kind of wish I hadn't asked. That's one of the reasons I love uh, Guillermo del Toro's commentary. Because everything is intentional. everything you thought of, he thought of three times. Yeah, he's like, well, that was just the obvious version. But uh, if you want to put a a little spin on it, then we uh, also, it's kind of about the reunification of Russia during the uh, 19th century. (laughs) Del Toro is one of those... um, uh, directors where you can go behind the puppet show and see the strings and then you can sit down with the puppets and be fascinated by what they have to say for the next three hours. The only other point that I wanted to mention was uh, technical storytelling. Mm-hmm. There is a pretty traditional camera use for most of the film in terms of it's very static and it's framing the room. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are very particular camera moves that are used to tell um, the emotion of a a particular scene on a few occasions. They mostly involve Lynn, Mm -hmm. interestingly enough. You've got um, the scene where she comes into the kitchen and she's making breakfast and then she goes out and comes back in and all the cupboard doors are open. Mm -hmm. That's shaky handheld cam it follows her through the kitchen the the reason for that is because they do it in one long tracking shot she comes in mm-hmm. the cupboards are closed she goes out she comes back in again and they've they've all opened again well no the 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 actual reason they do it is because uh, in the same way that there's radio burbling in the background the movement of the camera and the radio in the background create a what appears to be a seamless flow from one room to the second room and then back to the first room again there is a cut when the camera goes to the door ah. but it's so smooth mm. and so perfect you don't really notice and because happening. of the bobbing of the camera it's the one part of the movie where that magic trick needs to be sold yeah but the the slightly frantic nature of that camera motion provides you with a very definite division between Malcolm and his calmness and uh, the fact that Lynn, although she is still very compassionate with Cole and very understanding and caring, she does have that slightly frantic, trying to keep all the balls in the air... Mm, Two jobs. ...kind of thing. Two jobs and kid and house and all the other things that that she's trying to deal with. Um, there's also um, a fair few scenes where they use division to show the relationship between characters. When you get a scene where it pulls back and you get both of them, sorry, where it pulls back and you get both of them in camera, that's usually to do with bonding, connecting, that they are exchanging information in a, a quite a powerful way. When there's a scene where they do shot reverse shot, or even more um, significantly, they are within the same frame, but you get the camera zooming in and panning backwards and forwards between them, so you don't see the two characters within the same frame at the same time. And that seems to be to underline the idea that they're talking to each other, but it's not its not connecting. The, there's something's missing, there's a broken point in the middle. Um so it really underlines the separateness between them. And then um, at the very end, you've got that moment where um, Malcolm's watching the wedding video mm-hmm. and then it fades to white. 
and then you get that final shot of him and Anna kissing at the wedding. And the way it came across to me was that basically this is the image he's taking with him. <laughs> 